Well, he is, and he is all that we just sang, and he is holy. Um, he will come in glory. We will behold his face. Oh, bring it, bring it on, right? Uh, boy, we're singing that, and I'm thinking so much of so much of that as what we saw in our study through the book of Revelation, isn't it? I mean, all of his glory and who he is and his set-apartness, his holiness and, and all of that. And uh, in fact, I want to start there. I, uh, we're just getting our feet walking into the book of Judges into a new series if you're visiting with us. And we're just getting started laying the groundwork. And today is kind of one more laying the groundwork. We're going to be in Judges chapter 2 here in a little bit. But I actually want to kind of remind ourselves of where we were at in Revelation. There's a reason for it here. Um, Revelation. What a ride that was on that bus, huh? Um, that was a uh, great time. It really was. Huge, challenging time for me personally. And I think us in so many ways, we had nine months we were doing that. And, and I, I, I trust, I continue to pray that the Lord would be using that in my life and in our life, uh, that we would see him bigger and behold who he is. And I trust that that's happening in your life. Um, reminder, all of Revelation after going through that and the finish of that was in the start of the book. And then we brought at the finish of that, we brought that all back to the seven local churches because those were said to be written to those seven local churches. It was directly for them, but it certainly has implication and application for us as well. And so we brought that all back in and uh, that was telling us about, in other words, for those even, those seven local churches, the coming truths that were coming are truths that brought back to them that made a, made a difference in their day. The coming truths matter now. And I would say it this way, the coming story is not just a completely different story, but the coming story tells us about our story now. And so the future reality of things, bringing it back into the now, helps us to understand actually what's taking place now. And when we were looking at that, we kind of wrapped it up in three sections, if you will, where it was see Jesus, see the war, and see the victory, see the coming victory in that. And one of the things I really want to highlight for us here at this time with the book of Judges is the middle one, see the war. Uh, friends, um, Kind of bad news, but also on the whole, good news uh, is that we live in a war. We live in a war zone. That's the reality of it. There is Revelation chapter 12. There's a war going on between God and the dragon, God and Satan, and we are involved in that war zone. And people wonder, why do all the bad things in the world happen? Well, because we live in a spiritual war zone is why. And when we need, to, we need to understand that and grab a hold of that, that we live in a war, realizing that this place, as it is now, this for the person in Christ is not our home. Okay, this is not our home. We are aliens here. Some people will say, you guys are like aliens here. And we're like, spot on um, in all that. But this is not our home. And, and this place is not all that there is. And we have a tendency to live like it is. And we have a tendency to live like uh, uh, what we were created to want, this place can satisfy. But the fact of the matter is, is our creator, our God created us to want him. And while living in this place, and there's some marvelous, wonderful things about living here, but it does not fill the hole that God put in us to want him and to be in relationship with them. And yet we struggle with all that. So I just want to remind us, number one, as we get ready to go into the book of Judges, we live in a war zone. Number two, I want to bring in our next sermon series after that. We spent five weeks on we are. We are. So who are we? And we talked about those, or the guys talked about those, and it's we're about unashamed worship. We're that kind of people. And by the way, this isn't just about Sundays getting together, but we're to be a people that are about the unashamed worship of Jesus Christ in all of life. I'm not necessarily saying, singing a song, driving down the road, sing it. But I'm just saying an attitude of worship and unashamed of a sovereign God is at work in our world and in our lives. Unashamed worship, also unapologetic proclamation. It's not we're mad about people. No, 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 no. It's that we're joy-filled in the fact that God has given us his word. And unapologetically, this is God's word 
uh, in a day and age where it tends to be put down as irrelevant, uh, we just say this, we're a people unapologetically, this is God's word and this is what we cling to. Also, we talked about unrestrained love. We wanna be that kind of people. We don't wanna be the mad about it people. We wanna be the people that see the love that God has poured out on us, the grace that the Lord has poured out on us and to extend that and to be flowers of that love. And fourth, unafraid witness. Uh, We have a story to tell and we have a great good news to proclaim. And we wanna do that in an unafraid kind of way together. And lastly, we need to be an unceasing prayer kind of people. All of that face down. All of that face down all the time. By the way, as I'm just going through this, just part of what's going through my own personal mind is I'm just so thankful for our pastors and, that are here and who took us through that series. And just for our guys, I just tell you personally, I had to say that publicly, I'm just so grateful for our guys and their families. What a blessing they are to me personally. And, uh, but that's who we are. That's who we are. Now, I wanna take those two and I wanna bring them together. And I'm all moving somewhere. I wanna bring those together and I wanna make a statement. It's this. It's critical that we know where we are and who we are. It is absolutely critical to be able to do what we're called to do and be what we're called to be. You have to know where you are and who you are, okay? The Revelation series tells us where we are. We live in a war zone and our, we, we are series tells us kind of as in a way for us to wrap it up in the kind of a way to say, and listen, in this war zone, we want to be that kind of people. We live in a war and we are that. Now we have not accomplished that, right? We're pursuing after that. Now, let me add this. In order to be a people living in a war and be a people that's pursuing being like that, that means we also have to be a people that see Jesus big. Okay? If we do not see Jesus big, that won't happen. But a seeing Jesus people big in a war seeking to be like that also has to be a people that has their hope held in the fact of the coming victory. Listen, all of this fits together. I just want for you to know we are moving you somewhere. Okay, we're not just like, oh, let's do that, oh, let's do that, oh, let's do that. But even the past two series, nearly the last year of teaching is flowing into one another and is flowing into this present series through the book of Judges. Why? Because the people in the book of Judges forgot where they were and who they are. And if we wanna know what it looks like to be a people that is not living this way, We have a whole book about a people like that. In fact, I invite you to turn to Judges, chapter one. We're gonna be in chapter two today. But the beginning of the book of Judges, it's probably somewhere around page 200 in your Bible, 250 in your Bible. What happened? They forgot where they were and they forgot who they are. And by the way, what's really important to understand with this is While I and we forget where we are and who we are in the context of what I've just said at times throughout it, this was a holistic thing. They were holistically losing where they were and who they are. Um, Tozer says in his book called This World Battleground or Playground, uh, yeah, maybe I stole the title. Um, actually, I had the title and saw the book. It's kind of interesting, kind of cool. But we'll say I stole it. Um, Tozer in his book, he says this, listen, this is kind of a riddle sentence, but listen to it. Things are for us not what they are. I'm sorry. Things are for us not only what they are, they are, are what we hold them to be. Let me say that again. Things are for us not only what they are, they are also what we hold them to be. And he goes on to say this, God's people often think of this world not as a foreign land, but as our home. God's people think of this world not as though they are here to fight, but here to frolic. God's people often think of this world not as a battleground, but as a playground. Lord, I pray as we enter into this text here, I just pray that you would help us to be a people that understands where we live and who we are. 
Father, the reality, and you certainly know it better than we do, is we live in a spiritual battleground. We do, we do. There's a war going on around us and and a spiritual reality that's showing its fruit in so many ways. But there's also a war going on around us that's within us. And Lord, our world tells us that this world is a playground, that this is our life, to make the most of it, give it the gusto, you only got one life to live. But it's not a playground. There's something far bigger and something far better than that. There's something much cooler, something something much heavier, something much more broader, something much more eternal than that. And I would just ask here, Lord, for your help, for me, for us, that we would be grabbing a hold as we get started in this very intriguing, interesting book of the Bible, that you would help us here to kind of get our feet on the ground, our eyes in the right place, and our ears and our hearts ready to hear and to listen from you. So that's the place we put us, face down, before you, called to be a set-apart people. Help us to be that. In the precious name of Jesus we pray, right? Amen. Well, last Sunday, talked about uh, chapter 1 through uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Big, cha- big chunks. I'm taking a big chunk last week, a big chunk this week, and then we'll kind of slow the chunks down. Um, last week, the, the subtle holistic shift God's people has taken, we, we saw it in the text from last Sunday, and, and we saw it on a map as well, and I've got both up here. You can see those, because I, I want to show you kind of as a review of what's going on. Chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through chapter 2, verse 5, is telling us the state or the status out of 9 out of the 12 tribes. We don't need to know about the other four. That's not what the important part is. 9 out of 9 of them are having an issue. In other words, 100% of them, this is a holistic thing. You can see up on the screen those nine twelves, those nine tribes uh, in the yellow there. You can see, even if you can't read it, you can see the text following after that. Something was going on with all nine tribes. And essentially, it comes down to they were not driving out the inhabitants in the land that was there. Why is that a problem? That's a problem because we went and we took a look because God told them to drive the inhabitants out. Oh, by the way, P.S., if you want to know what's going on in the mindset of the Middle East right now, you're in it, okay? This is not ancient information. This is the heart and the core of the whole war thing going on today over there, over the battle for the land. Man, this is real stuff. And so in it, we saw last time, Exodus 21, verses 5 and 6, they're at Mount Zion. No, I won't do the recording and scare you again with the lightning and stuff. But that was funny to watch, I got to tell you, uh, if you were here then. And, uh, but, but Exodus 21, it te- God tells his people that you're to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a set-apart nation. In other words, you're to be a nation unlike any nation on the planet, and you're to be a nation of priests. By the way, please understand this. I think we have the tendency, we don't get this, we think that there's this idea that the promised land was this place where these God, these God raised up people given a purpose and this place where God was taking them there to have a vacation spot, to kind of have like a temple there where they all just hunker down and do their religious thing in a real high and mighty kind of a way. Listen, being called priests in this context of what God was calling him to do, he was like, I'm going to I'm raising up a people, I'm giving you a place, and it's really what I would say in New Testament terms with the Great Commission call. You are to be priests to the world. God was raising up a people that would then bring the good news of the Lord to the world. It wasn't about a hunkered down home. It wasn't a vacation place, it was a sending base place. And that's what the Lord has laid out to people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Exodus 23, he tells them that very important things in verses 31 to 33 that God says that he will give the inhabitants of the land into their hands. And it's, he says that they shall drive them out. And he tells them that they shall make no covenant with them and their gods. And he tells them that the Canaanites and the otherites should, should not be allowed to dwell in the land with them. And God told 
told them that they are not to serve their gods or it will be a snare to them. God was very clear to them. And God's people said, we're in, we're in, we hear it. Now look again, if you will, at Judges chapter one on the screen or in your Bible. And I'll say this, here's what's going on. God's people are not doing what God asked. God's people are not doing what they said they would do. That's the bottom line. Holistically, for years now, God's people are not doing what God called them to do. They're not being who God called them to be. They're not living as they said they would. They did not obey the Lord. And God told them if they were going to be that, And by the way, God's not waiting for people to mess up and to chomp on them. This is a holistic thing that's now taking place. And God's like, and we'll see this in a little bit, and God's like, you know what? I told you, I've been patient with you. I've been long-suffering with you. I understand you're not perfect, but listen, you're to be a passionately pursuing me people and you aren't being that. And so I've got to do what I said I would do. And he does. Also, just before we leave this chapter one thing, uh, note what the Lord's been doing. You can see it in the green there. And I'll highlight for you if you can't see it. Here's what the Lord during all of this, the Lord has said, the Lord has gave, the Lord was with, the Lord brought up, and the Lord brought them into. Dot, 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 in spite of their unfaithfulness. That should well up within us just a gratitude. Oh, God. God, thank you that you are not there on the edge of your seat waiting for me, waiting for us the very moment that we step aside and you smack us upside the head. That is not who God is. He is a long-suffering, patient God with it. And even in our unfaithfulness, God is always faithful. He is always pressing ahead with what he is. And he still says, he still gives, he's still with, he still brings up, so cool. But he's also faithful to his word. In fact, you can see there in the very end of the text in chapter, beginning of chapter two there in the red, he says, but, 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 I, because of this, your disobedience, I will not drive out. He is faithful even to what he has said he would do. So we ask, what has happened with God's people? It's so sad. The answer is God's people are holistically living in outright, unadulterated, unrepentant disobedience for years. And by the way, it's not two tribes or three tribes or four tribes. It's nine out of nine. It's holistic. It's in their DNA now. So what happened? Great question. I'm glad you asked. Let me answer it this way. The battleground became their playground. The battleground that they were called to war in has now become their playground. They lost the outside war because they've lost the inside war. And we're going to see that here in chapter 2. Let me begin reading chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, that's cool, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. By the way, if you were here last Sunday, you may be going, didn't Joshua already die in Judges? In fact, the answer is yes. Look at chapter one, verse one, after the death of Joshua. What's the deal? The guy keeps dying. Okay, it's interesting what, what people will do with the text on this. And they're kind of like, well, well, that can't happen. I mean, we know that. But, but it's like, this must be an added insertion later in the text that's going on. Listen, listen. No, it's not. It just makes so much sense, actually. Judges chapter one is like, hey, Joshua died. Let me give you an update on the conquest. Chapter one is a state of the union address. It's a state of the conquest addressed, as we saw last week. This is what's happening. This is, there's a problem going on. Now, the question coming out of that is, why, what happened to God's people? And so it's like, okay, we stepped in with the state of the union. Now let's make a new step in and have a talk about what's going on in the state of the heart. 
of God's people. And so it's kind of like, let's go back and let's kind of re-enter, but from a new angle. You with me? So we're taking a look at the state of the heart here. Joshua died, verse nine. And they buried him within the boundaries of an inheritance in timnath and in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. Where do you live? I live in Gosh. I don't know, I thought it was funny. Verse 10, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. I'll pause there for a minute. Uh, so Joshua's generation, we clearly see here, what a cool generation. In the terminology I've already put on the table, I would term it this way. They lived like they were living in a war and they lived the people who they were called to be. Not perfect, but on the whole, they were. Verse 10, by the way, such a cool statement about death. All that generation were gathered to their fathers. Is that not cool? They're like, what happened to them? Oh, they died. We buried them and there's a morning and like everybody's, ah! no, it's just so, it's such a cool image. No, no, listen, they died as a team. They gathered as a team, if you will. They didn't all die at the same time. But as they died, they were all gathered together. They were gathered to their fathers. You just walk away from this text so far and you get this idea that Joshua's generation was, what a cool generation of people. Let's pause and consider generations for a minute because it's something I'm personally just intrigued by. Let's talk about a couple. The Moses' generation. Moses' generation. What were they like? What did they experience? Here's some things I wrote down. They experienced slavery. I mean, they knew slavery. Moses' generation, by the way, at the time of the, the, the leaving Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, Moses' generation really would have been anybody that's like 20 years and up. I'm gonna go round numbers. 20 years and up, that's kind of Moses' generation. That, those people, 20 years on up, 50, 60, whatever ages they were, they knew everything that they knew about life up to that point was being a slave. They only knew slavery and they only knew parents that were slaves and they only knew grandparents that were slaves and they only knew great-grandparents were slaves. I mean, in their DNA mindset, they only knew slavery. They only knew being the lowest on the totem pole and being told and treated like dirt. That's all they knew. But then God shows up and there's the whole 10 plagues. And can you imagine? being a slave all this time and your God shows up in the kind of a way that the people that are the boss over you, your God trumps them. I mean, you cannot tell me that you are like, oh my God. <laughs> I mean, really in that, it's just, it's an amazing thing. They saw that, they saw the pillar of fire. They saw the Red Sea crossing. They also saw the Red Sea closing. Sometimes we forget about the dynamic of that. They saw the whole Mount Zion thing. But I also want to add that they saw, the, they saw a golden calf reality thing in them. And by the way, Moses' generation was noted way, way back when we went through the book of Exodus. Moses' generation was known as a bunch of complainers. They complained and they complained and they complained and they complained. But man, did they see God at work. But by the way, they also knew what desert wandering was. In fact, they died in the desert. From slavery to being a God-redeemed people to being given a set-apart purpose to be a nation of priests. Can you imagine? All you knew is slavery and then your God shows up in a dramatic way and he calls you a people and gives you a purpose. You're not slaves anymore. You're gonna be priests to the world. Super cool. But by the way, don't be thinking that they earned it. If we bring that into our thinking, we've moved from grace to works. They did not earn this. God picked the lowly so that he would be great. They have nothing to brag about. Only God held them together. That's Moses' generation, Joshua's generation. The older ones uh, who were under 20, teens and kids, uh, they saw the Moses thing. They saw the 10 plagues. They saw the crossing of the Red Sea, at least those ones. M most of them, though, didn't see any of that. They knew being desert nomads. 
40 years in the desert. Born there, coming out of there, that's all that they knew. And yet being called to a promised land and to be a nation of priests. But they also knew God among them. The whole tabernacle thing. The Shekinah glory thing. They knew moving that thing around. God was always in their presence. How cool is that? They knew that kind of a God with them. They knew of the Joshua chapter three, the half mile back thing before crossing over the Jordan River and watching the priests carry and stepping into the flooding Jordan River and it separate and the ark going across and them crossing on dry ground. By the way, not muddy ground, not wet ground, dry ground. And then they also experienced putting their foot on the other side of that river for the first time. It's like putting their foot on the moon, but they're putting their foot in the promised land, the place, they're the first ones there. Can you imagine? Your parents were slaves. Now you got a place. Crazy cool stuff that they experienced. They also knew of Jericho. They knew of the sun standing still thing. They knew of a big God conquest in the victories. They knew of the allotments of the territories to each of the 12 tribes. But I will also say, they knew of the whole Achan defeat and they knew of the whole Gibeon mess. Listen, Joshua's generation was not perfect by any means. Both Moses's and Joshua's generations, I noted down here, had firsthand experiences in three things. Let me give them to you from my perspective. One, they both knew hard times. Whether it was slavery or being a desert nomad. No one wants either of those. They both knew hard times. By the way, that also includes they both knew God's discipline. They knew of that. They knew hard times. Both of those generations also knew God with. By the way, not a God with theoretically, not not academically, not God at a distance. I mean, they knew God with. I mean, God brought the plagues and God opened the sea and God was at the mountain and God moved with them in the desert. I mean, they only knew a God with reality. Number three, they knew God at work. By the way, not a genie God, not a God makes me feel good God, not a uh, golden ticket God, but they knew a God at work. They knew hard times, they knew God with, and they knew God at work. Those Moses' and Joshua's generation, not perfect, but they knew those and experienced those. I'm curious, now the judges' generation. I wonder what they're going to be like. You would think coming out of that stock that you are headed for the right track. Look at verse 10, chapter two. And there arose another generation after them, Joshua's generation. Look at this. Who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. What? Does that just not befuddle you? It totally befuddles me. What happened? What happened? They did not know the Lord. They did not know the work of the Lord. Okay, I want to pause here just for a minute and have a generations talk. There's the real possibility that uh, right now in a room this size and then double this with the other service as well, there's a real possibility of one thing that can happen with, uh, I'll say, us older generation, us gray hairs. I'm 54, I'll put myself there. The gray hair prevents me from looking younger. There's a tendency somehow that we could associate ourselves with Joshua's generation. And then the younger generation in this room, they're the other generation. And I just want to lovingly say to those of you in my stage of life, 50 and up, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't do that. And I'll just lovingly say it. If so, stop it. That's not what the text is talking about. That's not what it's inferring. That's not where it's going. There's also the possibility for the younger generation in this room 
to think that the older generation has passed you a big pile of mess. And you know what? When I was your age, I thought the same thing. I remember in my 20s thinking, you know what, older generation? You kind of passed me messed up families, a messed up society, a messed up world. Honestly, I'm not all that impressed with what you've passed me. And it's true. But I also want to say to the younger generation, just lovingly this, it's a lot harder than you think, and you don't know all that you think you know right now. I'm not talking down to you, I'm just being honest with you, because it was the same for me. And probably the same for all the gray hairs in this room. Okay, so here, here's what I want to do. When we get generations talk here, there's a tendency, and I'm concerned that there's the potential tendency to bring generational divide. But here's how we need to look at this. We need to look at, we are a generation. Okay? Any good team has team playing veterans on it. And any good team has strong legs, strong arm, excited minds, youth on it. True? Because if you get an all-young team, good luck. If you get an all-old team, you're dead. <laughs> True? Okay, so I'm truly trying to use this as a unifying moment here and that we don't go into the rest of the book of Judges and us older people, us crotchety older people start thinking, yeah, that does describe them. Stop it. Okay, we're in this together. Older generation, are we not with the younger? Yeah, a little louder would be helpful. Okay, younger generation, are you with us? Okay, a little louder too? I'd be encouraged with that. Hey, by the way, we have some amazing, excitingly cool younger generation people in our church here. And I'm cranked up about it. And by the way, we have some really cool older generation people in this church. And I am cranked up about that. Okay? All together. All right. Okay. So, Judges generation. Let's look at it this way. We don't want to be like them. Agree? We don't want to be that people that did not know the Lord or the work that the, that the Lord had done. So the question comes out of this is, what did they miss? What can we learn from them? What happened that we don't get there? Agreed? Okay, now here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through the rest of the chapter here in a pretty fast manner. And in fact, um, uh, in seven minutes. And I've already timed this out, and I think I was on time in the first service, and, but i got to take this off because I'm getting a little warm in seven minutes. It's going to go fast. Okay? So here's what's going to happen. We're, don't start the clock yet. <laughs> I'm not that stupid. Okay? Uh, I'll tell you when. Okay, here we go. I'm going to do verse 11, and uh, someone hit the clock because I'm just having fun. All right? Verse 11, let's pick it up. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is describing that generation that was not in a good place. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, they served Baals. We'll talk about that in coming weeks. Verse 12, here's a summary statement. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of people who were around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies whenever they marched out the hand of the Lord was against them for harm by the way as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress 
Just a couple notes. Verse 11. I think a summary thing. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. By the way, look over at chapter 3, verse 7. What does it say there? And the people, what? They did, yeah, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, look at chapter 3, verse 12. Well, what does it say there? And the people did evil. And now look at chapter 4, verse 1. What does it say? Same thing. Listen, it's really important that you understand this is not like a, a momentary period of time where they were really struggling and then they, didn't, they didn't, weren't successful. In following. This is going and going and going and going. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 12 also, that looks like they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. We'll talk about that in coming weeks as I noted. By the way, it's not like they just attended a church with bad theology, by the way. It's way over the top from that. Verse 12 and 13, summary statement, they abandoned the Lord. They abandoned the Lord. That pictures it. Verse 12, they went after other gods. Verse 15, it wasn't working well for them. They were in terrible distress. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges that God rose up to save them. Look at this statement here. I'm reading the English Standard Version. For they hoard after other gods. Now, does that not like say it? As bluntly and as boldly as could be said? They hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the day of the judges. For the Lord was moved by pity, by their groaning, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. And whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their father's going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not stop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Verse 20, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. That's an interesting word. I'll come back to that, kindled. And he said, because this people has transgressed my covenant, that's a big deal, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive them out before uh, them, any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to, there's a purpose, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left the nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Verse 17, they did not listen to the judges that the Lord raised up. Verse 17, as I noted, a key thing here, they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Also, they turned aside, did not obey the commandment of the Lord. Verse 19, they turned back and were more corrupt. Verse 19, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Here's another summary statement. Verse 20, they transgressed the Lord's covenant. That's huge. They were covenant breakers. And verse 20, they did not obey his voice. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. I just don't have time to go into that today. Verse 3. Uh, these are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon uh, as far as Lebo Hamath. Uh, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Oh, and on top of that, their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons. Oh, and on top of that, they served their gods. Man, I mean, what a summary. Verse 5 in chapter 3. They lived among the Canaanites, a God had told them not to. They intermarried, God had told them not to. And they served their gods, and God had told them not to. Do you get a sense that this entire generation of God's people has a cancer going on? And I would say it this way. 
They are not living the war. They are not living who they were called to be. They are not living like this is a war. They are living like it's a playground. And they are not living who they were called to be. As we'll see later in the text of Judges, most view it as the summary verse of the book of Judges. Instead of being who they called, were called to be, they did what was right in their own eyes. You know, I am this way. This is the way I am. This is who I am. This is what I like to do. This is what I want. That's not what God has called. God has called people to be something. And we are to pursue after being who we are called to be. Listen, in all this, I ask ourselves, are you, are we all together, are we seeing that we live in a war battleground? I mean, turn on the news. And it's been this way ever since I've been a little kid. And there are some of you older than me. And it was like that before you. And by the way, we generally see history as our lifetime. And you go back before then, and before then, and before then, and before then, and before then. Revelation 12 is right. We live in a war zone. This is a spiritual battleground that is going on here. There's something much bigger than being a playground. There's something much better than it just being a self-induced playground. Are you living like this is a playground or are you living like this is a battleground? That'll tell a ton about what's going on in your life. Are you living who you are or who you are called to be? Or are you living what you want to be? Not a perfect people. But we're to be a people that are a face-down people pursuing hard after the Lord. And we know that we are pursuing hard after the Lord in a world that is a spiritual battleground. Friends, life is hard, isn't it? It is tough. It is confusing. And we get caught in the playground ourselves, don't we? I do. We have the struggle. The Lord knows the struggle in it. But we need to keep before us and press on ahead by God's grace and the help of his word and the help of his spirit. We need to press on to not put our joy and our identity and our hope in this world. In fact, let me make some comments on that. We often tie our joy to this present world. Like how? Well, like I have joy when my health is good. And when my health isn't good, I don't have joy. I have joy when my schedule is good. I have joy when I'm in control. I have joy when life is easy and comfortable. I have joy when there's no conflict going on. I have joy when I feel secure, I feel significant, or or when I'm liked, or I'm appreciated, I'm respected. That's when I feel joy. Friends, joy is much greater than that. That's a horizontal joy. There's a joy in the Lord that trumps all of that. And you can have horrible health and really hard times and no money and have joy. How? We're getting there. We often tie our identity to this world, to what I can do, to who I know, to how I look to my grades, to my relationships, to my home, to my car. Nothing's wrong with the nice home. Nothing's wrong with nice cars. But when we tie our identity to these things, do you see where we go wrong? It becomes our playground. All all as well, we tie our identity to our children, to our boyfriend or girlfriend or to our spouse. We tie our identity to our grandchildren or our career, or our image, or our personal piety, or our non-piety. We tie our image to how smart we are, how good at sports we are, to whether we're a good small group leader or not, to being an elder, to being a pastor, to being, I'm the one who can turn to the book of Habakkuk in a moment, and you can't. (laughs) I can't. Or I'm the Christian that can say blank. Or I'm the Christian that can drink blank. 
or I'm the Christian that can look like blank, or I'm the Christian that you fill in the blank. And we end up tying even our identity to Christ oftentimes by what we do here. We get stuck at tying our joy to this world and our identity to this world. And the third thing, we often tie our hope to this world. Our income, to our bank account, to the economy, to our children, to our health. Here's a recent one. We tie our hope to where if my presidential candidate gets in office or not. Really? That's the hope? Friends, let me tell you, there is a far greater hope in all of that. And his name is Jesus Christ. And God is taking things and moving things and he's the one to have hope in. This is not our home. This place cannot satisfy the want that God has created within us to want him. In fact, speaking of the Lord, let me finish with this. Uh, the Lord in the text. Verse 12 and 13, notice that the Lord is provoked to anger and it's his anger is told to be kindled. By the way, it's not the Lord is sitting there, like I said earlier, sitting there waiting to snatch you, bite you, smack you, discipline you. That is not the Lord. The Lord is slow to anger. But what happened? He was provoked, the word kindled. Uh, so it's like the Lord is sitting on the throne and God's people are putting kindling under the throne and lighting on fire. And he's like, okay, I don't like the heat very much. And they're like putting more and more and more and more. And he's like, I'm patient. I'm hanging with you guys because you're irritating me right now. <laughs> but he's patient and he's long suffering until it gets to the point to where that's the idea of the text. They kindled him into anger. They pushed him into anger. And the Lord had to respond. Enough is enough. Nine out of nine tribes are not doing what I asked, are doing things that are abominable before me. And this has got to stop. And the Lord responds. Verse 14, he gives them over to. Verse 14, he sold them into the hand of the enemy. Verse 15, his hand was against them. This is the same hand that brought them out. And now it's against them. Verse 15, he had warned them. He had given his sworn oath to them. Verse 16, he raised up judges who saved them. Even while they're kindling his anger, he's still raising up judges to save them. And why, was it, why did he do what he did? Because verse 22 in chapter 3, verse 4, to test them, to press, to press upon them. He was doing that out of love to bring them back. Well, let's finish our time with this. Look at chapter two, verse 10, all together. Let's finish there. I think just with what we've seen, I would hope our hearts just ache for these people. Oh, no. But I hope out of that, we would be the kind of generation people that we would be going, oh, Lord, not us, not us, right? Oh, Lord, might we not get there, Lord? Might not that be us? Might not we do the slow, subtle shift that way? Oh, Lord, because listen, what happened with them? They did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And I finish asking myself, was it because that generation was a bunch of spoiled brats and for some reason altogether, they just forgot and didn't listen? Could have been. But let me also put on the table this as an older guy. What happened with the older generation teaching the younger generation? They didn't know the Lord. They didn't know what the Lord did. Might it have been that they were winning the conquest, but they were losing at home. I don't know, but might it have been? 
Because when you think of King David, you think of David as God after man's own heart. We talk about David, we teach about David in those kind of contexts. But I have to tell you this, I have never been to a conference where they talk about David as an example of a father. David pressed after the Lord. But David missed it at home. And I just want to bring this all home. I want to bring this to this home and I want to bring it into your home. We need to be a people who presses together and helping each other know the Lord and see the Lord at work. Remember Moses' generation and Joshua's generation, one of the coolest things about those two generations? They saw God work. And when you go back, and I think we're going to find out as we go through some of this, with the book of Judges, as we start getting into the nitty-gritties of it after today, we're going to start finding out that this generation, they lost seeing God at work. And oh Lord, might that not be us, right? So the stage is set. Let's go from there. Lord, thank you. Most of all, for your amazing, amazing, long-suffering and patience and grace. God, we see these people in the book of Judges and they are a people in turmoil. They are a people in disobedience that has been long-lasting. And God, I would just pray it would be a sign in front of our faces that that not be us. That we not see this world as our playground and that we not become the kind of people who just do what is right in our own eyes. But instead, Lord, I pray from the series, we would learn to be a people who sees the war zone that we live in and presses hard to be the people we're called to be together. Lord, love this church family. I love this church family. And I yearn that we would be a people who truly sees you as good, even in hard times, who sees you good in being with us, who sees you as good in doing work in front of our eyes. Oh God, I pray we would be that kind of people. I pray that we would be a people that loves and pursues truth. Your face, your grace, your work, your love. So we leave it there, and yet we sing about just that now. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.